Hi, um, hello everybody. Welcome to our podcast, and hello, rest of rest of the team. How are you? Hi, yeah. Good. Good morning. Hello. Hello. Um, so, in this session, we're we're going to look at ego defense mechanisms and basically the ideas of Freud. And um, w- one of the things that struck me when I was thinking about this session was that. Um, you know, in a way, we're going back to some of the very sort of basic ideas um, associated with psychology. And I think lots of people are interested in in studying psychology because they, they sort of want to know about themselves and understand what makes them tick and what makes other people tick. And um, and actually, these are the questions that Freud started out with. You know, he, he, he was just really curious about who we are and, and, and you know, why we are. And I think one of the things that was struck by is, you know, much of psychology these days is kind of framed in scientific terms. So you kind of go and see a psychologist and they will, uh, you know, have, have a kind of intervention with you that helps you adapt your behavior to meet the demands of, you know, living in a, in a quite difficult world or diminishing or reducing behaviors that might be difficult so I might go and see a psychologist and they will probably be a kind of CBT um, based psychologist that will give me a series of exercises to help me manage my behaviors and and I just wanted to sort of start this podcast with with pointing out that these weren't questions for Freud he wasn't that interested in people reducing difficult behaviors he's interested in just kind of knowing who people are and and all that kind of you know behavioral adaptation stuff comes later so in a way we're going back to the basics who are we and why are we and why do we behave in certain ways and that's it there aren't kind of suggestions about homework that you can do to stop this or change it and um so you know open your mind a bit and let's float back um there's going to be quite a lot of history in this because i love it but also i think it helps understand where freud essentially was coming from where with with the work he did around ego defense mechanisms and he started the work and his daughter anna freud carried on much of his work and we'll be talking about her later but um so a bit of a history lesson you've got a swirly kind of music you can imagine a kind of as being propelled backwards into 1856 and freud was born in a town called freeburg and which that's now in the czech republic um, it was, in those days, it was part of the Austri- Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is kind of, you know, a huge kind of um, empire uh, in that part of the world. And, um, it was, you know, it's before these, before countries were uh, defined like Czechoslovakia. And um, it, it, very early on when he was a child, he moved to uh, Vienna with his family. He was he was Jewish. He was born from a very sort of respectable Jewish family, and he was a bit of a golden child and encouraged to pursue a very sort of respectable career. So one of those was to become a doctor and like a you know like a GP doctor, um, like a medicine doctor. And from early on, Freud was really interested in this idea of memory because it kind of it's it, it's the place where the biological, like we have kind of memories encoded in our brain, but also the psychological, you know, it's like how we interpret those memories is is a psychological um, phenomena rather than just a, we're not just like recording equipment, you know, we don't experience something and 
just record the basic facts of it. There's a, there's a huge amount of kind of uh, emotion and 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 kind of self in that moment. So, and the other thing to to kind of bear in mind was at this when Freud was kind of um, starting out, psychology was was considered a branch of philosophy until the 1870s. So actually, you know, it wasn't a kind of medical, like, yes, we're going to study psychology. Psychology was thought of as a kind of philosophical, um, you know, investigation into kind of the world and understanding. And so this is, so Freud's kind of, if you read Freud's writing, he doesn't kind of write like a CBT manual these days. He writes in this kind of way that brings in lots of literature and myth and, and you know, it, it reads like literature. And that's, you know, that was the Freud I was introduced to. I kind of came across Freud through what was an, uh, you know, a, an English postgraduate course. And, and it was viewed very much as literature rather than um, a scientific manual. So anyway, what Freud's trying to do is create a language to understand ourselves. And that language isn't a sort of flat, um, you know, uh, factual medical language. It, it, it's a very uh, poetic and kind of expressive language, which I, that's one of the things I really love. Um, so in, as a young man, Freud went to study in Paris. So he's kind of trained to be a sort of doctor, like, you know, GP doctor. And he was um, working, his kind of his speciality was he was training as a neurologist. So somebody who was trying to kind of understand our nervous systems, our human nervous systems. So Freud goes off to study with the guy, a guy called Charcot, who, who at that point was like the big name, you know, the daddy of, of neurology in um, a hospital in Paris. And Charcot kind of discovered multiple sclerosis and something called the Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, which is a muscular disease. And it's not about teeth. Um, it's just, it was, he worked with somebody called Mr. Tooth. Um, but, you know, it, these early days of Charcot as well, I mean, there is no kind of electronic imaging. They're discovering how the nervous system works by uh, dissection and, and kind of cutting bodies up and things like that. So, you know, it's very, um, it's very sort of important to kind of remember how, what, how these guys were working, you know. And one of the things at that point, early, you know, Sharko sort of believed that hysteria was, and it was widely thought that hysteria was hereditary. It was like the disease of the nervous system. But during Charcot's work and Freud as kind of studying with him in Paris, he actually discovered that, uh, that the hysteria, so what was happening is people were coming to see Charcot and they were having kind of fits and the kind of hysterical, hysterical um, convulsions and so on. And I think on the handout we're going we're gonna to be sending out with this, there are some images of that. And um, sort of, so previously people have thought, okay, it's, it's, it's a hereditary thing. It's something to do with your um, nervous system. Where So Charcot's big sort of discovery was that actually people were having these kind of traumas, not because of physical, biological things that happened to them, but it was an emotional response. And, you know, that's the big kind of moment, if you like, where... It, it, it people are understanding um, trauma 
as as not a just a, a physical thing. And the other the other kind of important work Charcot did was, um, you know, trauma and kind of. Um, hysteria was mainly thought to be something that women suffered um, because they were weak and you know not able to kind of manage stuff um, and actually Shaka did a lot of work on male trauma and hysteria um, and, and, and kind of also worked a lot with soldiers and uh, kind of recognizing that that kind of occupations um, that might have been seen as very sort of masculine and macho actually the the, the, the men who um, were presenting with trauma were, you know, it wasn't a, a kind of weakness of, of, of masculinity, if you understand. So, um, so what, yes, yeah, so, so, so Freud is learning from Charcot that non-biological trauma can cause hysteria and that hysteria can be an expression of early traumatic experience. So, very important, Freud learns this, he goes back to work as a medical doctor in Austria and he is really kind of fascinated by the idea of the unconscious and that seemingly kind of meaningless behaviours were an expression of what was going on underneath. So, it, you know, Freud's kind of work is over 40 years and he didn't just like wake up one morning and have an idea and go, oh, there you go, there's psychoanalysis I've invented. It's like his work is fascinating to read because it, you can kind of plot his own kind of journey into learning. You know, he writes in it's sort of earlier work, he kind of contradicts in later works and so on because he's just learning. And um, so what one of his very important early concepts was this idea of repression which well you know I think with lots of things with Freud it's like because they're so much part of our everyday language it seems kind of obvious you know it's like oh yeah repression that's when people kind of shut stuff away but at the time when Freud's writing about it you know that's that's really radical stuff that stuff that's seemingly kind of inconsequential like dreams or kind of slips of the tongue you know freud is going like no no these are really really important so he's one of his really key ideas is this idea of repression and that means that you know if something's unacceptable for us we turn away from it and hide it from ourselves and we sort of dump it in the unconscious it's like a um you know the unconscious oh it's like spare room or something there's probably even more kind of locked away than that but you know you just dump a load of stuff somewhere because you can't deal with it and so Freud's kind of really interested he's not interested in sort of saying oh that's wrong you shouldn't do that he's just interested in why people are doing this and actually you know in Freud's earlier work he's he was kind of much more interested in bringing these kind of unconscious what you've dumped in your unconscious into kind of consciousness but actually kind of the later work he's writing about he's much more interested in how the kind of how you manage to, to kind of negotiate and interact with the with the kind of real world rather than going back into all the kind of dark dark kind of unconscious um are you all with me? I feel like you've all drifted off somewhere. You're completely all... gripped. <laughs> you're all in sort of, you know, <laughs> waltzing around in Austria somewhere in like 1905 or something. Okay. No, it's good. It's good to get a history, like a history perspective kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, you know, I do want people to kind of just you know think gosh this is this is just somebody kind of going who who are we you know how do we work in the world so 
What's so the really key kind of the re, really key piece of work is published in um, 1923, and the, please, um, you know, listeners who can speak German, you have to kind of cover your ears or something, um, because he publishes a, a a kind of piece of work called Das Ich und das Eis. And that is the worst German accent ever. And but sort of roughly translated, this means the the eyes and the it, and the eyes not don't mean like visualize. I mean the you know letter I. And this is actually here's what's called Freud's structural model. So um, so basically, it, it, why I'm telling you this in really bad German is it's really important because I'll explain. Uh, so basically, in this model, Freud goes we as human beings are sort of motivated by drives and these drives are, are, are called by freud eros and thanatos which is you know very sort of it's it's life and death these are our drives they're the the, the, they're the desire to kind of live but also and very importantly there's a sort of destructiveness in us and what freud was describing in this in this work is how the ego the self or the how the self yeah sorry that's how the self manages these drives of life life and death um the really important thing is to note that the terms id and ego and superego which are most associated this aren't really descriptions of, of that they were terms adapted by uh, his translator into english a guy called uh, james stracy so actually i just want to sort of think for a moment like Freud's description are the eyes, the, the the self, and the it, and so you know the he's very clear about the self. There are two selves, and then there is the it. And Freud kind of describes this as the the sort of simple I and the over I. Well, I feel like this is really confusing. Um, so, and then the it. So when I say I go out for a walk, it it's not actually it's only one part of me. There's actually a whole part of me that goes out for a walk. And it's like the, the I me, the ego me, the over I, which is translated as the super ego, and the really, really dark it bit of me. And I am all these people. And um, you know when people sort of say, oh, I don't know what came over me. Freud would say, that the it came over you or the id part of your personality oh i don't know why i did that you know are, are, we, we are full of kind of unconscious motivations about our behavior this mm -hmm. boy believed and um i think you know the the the, the kind of terms developed by uh, his translator of the id the ego and the superego um are kind of helpful because they're, they're sort of differentiations they kind of define different parts of, of the self but there's something really powerful as like understanding this kind of conflict between the i and then the the above i and the 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 below the the, the it and um that's, that's sorry that's really helpful because i was kind of seeing it in a very kind of vertical way like the the above the bit at the top and then the kind of the, the middle bit and then this kind of thing in the basement or the depths like there was this very kind of vertical visual that i was getting in my head so i think that really helps yeah it's uh, i don't it's it's kind of gets a bit hard to do this on podcast but um and normally when i'm, I'm kind of delivering training i i draw it like a burger bun 
um, which TM I, I developed. And it's like, if you imagine your, your kind of yourself is this kind of burger in, in between these kind of buns of, you know, super ego and, um, and, and id or above it, above I and the it. Um, and basically Freud sort of says that we're born like in our it, in our id. It's, it's a really important part of our personality because as babies, it, it's the thing that, that, that kind of gets our needs met. So, and, and actually this is based on what Freud called the pleasure principle, which is, you know, in other words, the, the it gets whatever it wants when it needs it with no consideration of reality of the situation. So when a child is hungry, they just want food and they cry. They don't think, oh, it's, you know, it's like, oh, it's 11.30 in the morning. It's a bit early for lunch. Um, you know, they are like, no, food now. And like to hold you know Freud things about kind of how that that child goes through various stages and matures to understand that there's a world it needs to negotiate with mm. and while I was kind of writing this I was thinking about how you know and I'll, I'll kind of I'll put it back on myself a bit because I don't want you know I want to sort of recognize that I'm not just saying oh yeah people have struggles with drugs or that but you know when 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 I was throughout most of my life I just couldn't face the world or negotiate the world. So I was constantly thrown back into a sort of it. Well, I want to do this now. Why, why is the world being so unreasonable and asking me to do something that I can't do? Because I never really learned to, to do it. That makes sense. The, the, the ego bit of me never really grew up. I was just like a fucking baby. But I was you know, 30. Yeah, right. Do you know what? It makes absolute sense. And to be quite honest, I feel quite itish or quite idish <laughs> right now. You know, I I feel like a, a bit of an uncontrollable wild force right now. If I'm honest with you, so yeah, true sailors. Say more, Bex. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you just want to be like I don't know. This it's like what Liz was saying earlier. I don't know why I did that. Well, that's kind of pretty much like, you know, me at the moment. Like, why am I doing that? Why am I doing, what? This ain't like me. What? It's like I'm running from naked through the streets or something. Do you know what I mean? Because I have this uncontrollable kind of like force within me. Like, I feel really full of energy. But I'm not too sure where it's coming from. Mm. But, and it relates a lot to what you said about like young babies before they go through like, I don't know if you call it higher stages of development, but like the idea that there's something um, like some kind of force that drives you to react a certain way if you haven't got a basic need that is being met. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, there's no sort of rationalising it. No, no, and it's interesting because like Freud kind of basically sort of says, look, children kind of develop and it all goes well. And they develop, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of sense of self, the ego develops. Um, on, a, on what Freud calls a reality principle, which is just kind of like it sounds really. It's like you learn to deal with reality. But I'm guessing what, what we're all recognizing is that if you have experienced trauma and felt really unsafe as a little baby, then you never quite kind of get into that development. And, and there's all that kind of uh, Bex's itish behavior. Yeah. <laughs> solved. Hey, <laughs> solved. <laughs> But if, so if we think of ourselves, I know you're not very well today, uh, Bex, just for, you know, for our listeners who can't see uh, Bex's swollen face. Um, but, uh, you know, when we're not 
when the world is difficult, we literally go back into kind of baby mode, mm-hmm. don't we? Curl up in bed, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, cover, you know, sort of the so-called duvet days. We just, you know, want to be like, oh, I'm a little baby. I can't cope with the world. And he, you know, I don't want to get too sort of tangled up in Freud's kind of, I feel like I am already, but I don't want to get too tangled up in like, this is Freud's theory. Blah, blah, blah. Because actually, look, it's really fucking simple. You know, he's kind of saying there's, there's three, you're a whole person, there's three bits of you. There's the really, you know, itish bit that you were born with. And then as you mature, you learn a, a kind of a reality principle, how to negotiate the world better. Yeah. And then you also developed, um, you know, Freud says like you then take in, um, you kind of take in external, um, you know, sort of, demands the what he would call the over eye or the super eye which are kind of you know um more kind of like cultural and social ways of behaving like oh you can't do that so in in some people that over eye is really really strong and their kind of sense of self is is quite small so if we go back to the kind of um burger analogy that you know the little burger or veggie burger if you want to be but the little burger bit of you is tiny and the bun you know the, the super ego bun is really kind of hefty and doughy and the under eye you know id it bun is also kind of hefty and that you're just this tiny little, you know, kind of morsel in between those two things. It's just not an enjoyable burger. No, it's horrible. (laughs) 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 What you need is a burger. It's a really nice, let's let's all be vegetarian for you. A really lovely, juicy, vegan um, burger with nicely kind of um, measured, you know, top and bottom buns. Um, I think we're going to have to, Liz, you're going to have to do us a drawing for the handout, ma'am, because I think everybody wants to know what this gorgeous vegan burger idish bun like looks like. <laughs> Do you know what? I know one of the things I know we talk about the training day is, you know, certainly going kind of back to my behaviour. I'd do something really idish. Like it would be an absolute arsehole. It really, you know, off my face. Um, go, go out. It would be an absolute prick. And then... That, so that was all kind of idiot. I don't, I don't fuck it. I want to do what I want. You know, everybody do anchor, and then kind of you know collapse, collapse at home, and wake up the next morning, and then the kind of super ego. Oh, you utter fuck. You can't, you can't remember what you've done, but you're like you utter utter prick. Why did you do that? Oh my god. You know, like full of all that sort of shame, and shame very much sort of sits in the super ego part of this. So, you know, shame is like, oh, God, they'll all think you're an arsehole, which I probably did. Um, but, yeah. And so what I kind of found that I was just, you know, like moving between the kind of <laughs> the doughy id bit and the really doughy superego bit. And myself just got lost. I got smaller and smaller. My burger got smaller and smaller. Mm. And I'd just like to point out that this is, you know, nobody else talks about it like this way. So I have to trademark this bit. But, you know, to, like our book's going to be called something like Being a Bigger Burger. <laughs> um, being a bigger juicy burger but anyway so this is all kind of you know like freud's kind of like the ego is just this this thing that's that's kind of caught in the middle of of something and actually it, it's really hard to negotiate because you know uh, reality is really really difficult and reality involves other people and their own weird shit so the the poor ego is kind of stuck here trying to negotiate the world but the of course the idea um with think this the work we're trying to do and and the, the idea if you 
would go and see a therapist or, or something like that is to sort of develop a sense of self a really strong burger a really sense of who you are so that that negotiation and interaction with the world becomes a little easier mm. and so you're not just flipping between those kind of two buns um so Freud like this took Freud quite a long time to kind of develop all this work and um so he he kind of basically said that the 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 ego develops um defense mechanisms um to just look after itself really and their sort of psychological strategies um brought into play by by the sort of unconscious so unconsciously they're often unconscious defense mechanisms but it's it's our unconscious way of looking after ourselves and it's it's to defend the I, the ego state, against feelings of anxiety or unacceptable impulses, because those impulses, those drives, you know, might be understood as socially unacceptable, and actually that that they they might be repressed or shut down because um, the, the the unconscious recognizes that they need to be. So. Um, also, just at this point, sort of Freud gets so far with defense mechanisms, and then his work in the last 15 years of his life, he was looked after by his daughter, Anna Freud, who uh, I hadn't known much about actually. And kind of in the research for this, I really, so I love to start to really love Anna Freud. I think she's really interesting, and she did a lot of work. Um, she opened a Montessori school in London. And she was really interested in kind of like um, children and kind of them once again being able to kind of develop a really kind of healthy sense of self through those 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 kind of um, you know principles of Montessori of the importance of of children not being just trained like little you know soldiers about them discovering who they are through that that approach. And I don't know, does anybody know much about Montessori? I just kind of think of it as some nice, like, children get to play um, and so on. No. Something about self-directed learning, like you let the children decide what activities they want to do. But I don't know if that's a gross symptom. Yeah, they don't have, you don't have specific set times of doing this, now we're going to do this, now we're going to do that. You've got things available at different tables or... And then the kids just go and choose what they want to do when they want to do it. And they don't necessarily do academic stuff till quite later. I think like above seven or, you know, they don't push academic stuff at all. It, the child, it comes down to the children to choose what they want to do. There's a lot of play as well for quite a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It makes total sense, doesn't it, in terms of this kind of ego defense, uh, not uh, ego development, sorry, not ego defense, you know. It's like you find out who you are in a really natural way by following what you want to do in a, I guess, a setting with other children. So it's not just like selfish, idish, like I want to do this. Um, you're actually kind of negotiating what you want as a child with other children. And totally, because I think it's also that thing of not introducing too much of a superego at a young age, like feeling shame because, you know, you can't write neatly or add up maths in, you know, as fast as your friends or as much as the teacher wants or something. It's so horrible, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's just like, oh, fuck, you know, we, we, we bring up children like they're fucking dogs or something. I bring up our dogs much better than kids sometimes. Future yeah. workers, isn't it? Future workers. Yeah. <laughs> Can 
hell. Uh, yeah, anyway, so I feel like I feel a, a bit overwhelmed with the kind of sadness then. Like, you know, how are people supposed to know who they are when, you know, actually it's just a load of super ego, you know, commands. It, it's not surprising that, that, that people act up as, you know, id-style children, is it? When it, you're brought up in, in a world full of awful kind of, like, you got to do this, you've got to do that. So... Loads of child psychology, isn't that, that, that was influenced by Freud and people still now saying like, it's so basic, you've got to understand when people are acting out as kids in school, it's not because they're bad or naughty, like they just have a different learning style, they're just learning at a different pace and they shouldn't be punished or excluded. It, I mean, it is extraordinary to think about this. I mean, you know, Freud's not alone. I mean, kind of, you know, there were other people doing kind of work around this time. But if you think of this as being basically about 100 years old, these kind of insights into like, you know, how children develop and, you know, Anna, Anna Freud's work with child, child development is great. And that's, that's kind of 1930s-ish. Um, 40s 30s and we talked about John Bowlby and you know and attachment theory and it's a bit like nobody's fucking got the message yet can you swear on podcasts which you can <laughs> um but it's a bit like fucking hell come on you know like it's not really difficult to understand so yeah sorry kind of slight 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 di uh, diversion there um but yeah so it, it it's a kind of like i hope this idea of kind of this this like fragile ego trying to negotiate the world and getting all these kind of commands like super ego oh, i can't do that um and on all these kind of drives is really really difficult so freud sort of basically said this come this leads to what we call anxiety and um, he, he sort of identified three kinds of anxiety. And one is neurotic anxiety, which is a very unconscious way, that, like worry that we'll lose control over our kind of it or idis urges resulting in, in punishment. So, you know, ooh, I feel like I'm going to lose control is what would be called by Freud a neurotic anxiety. Um, the second type is what he would call a reality anxiety, which is a fear of real world events. And the cause of anxiety is usually identified. Um, and this is the kind of, you know, somebody might worry, um, might fear, uh, you know, getting a dog bite when they're near a frightening dog. We talked about this when we talked about the last podcast, didn't we, about overwhel you know, overwhelming feelings. And this is what Freud calls reality anxiety. And I'm guessing that currently, you know, there are real, when I go out shopping at the moment, I notice my, my, my sense of anxiety is heightened by, you know, people coming closer than two meters to me and things like that you know it's like i can feel it coming raising in me i don't know about other people was it just me is anyone else experiencing this phenomenon of like going shopping for stuff and then having really shit shops like coming out with like not a very kind of coherent yeah. set of things in your basket because i i there's a veg shop and i'll kind of like wait in this veg shop i'm queuing outside my anxiety's building yeah. This, and I have so much anxiety that I just make really shit decisions and I come out with a really weird selection of like fruit and veg. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of, I quite, I quite, you know, I quite enjoy shopping for food because I'm, I enjoy cooking normally this is, you know. So normally I'd kind of take myself off to 
Sainsbury's, whatever. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I could do that and that. You know, I could, oh, yeah, I could, you know, sort of sweet potatoes are reduced. Oh, I know, I could kind of do something with them. And at the moment, I'm just kind of going in there and, yeah, with a list and kind of getting stuff and feeling really, really stressed yeah. uh, by the experience and, and other people. Mm not recognizing um social distancing so yeah i mean you know freud that's a kind of freud would sort of say that's not neurotic it's not that you're worried about your id will kind of explode it's actually really really based on reality so the ego in that moment the self in that moment is actually just identifying stuff going on around it going yeah okay this is threatening and um it might need to kind of defend itself right so when people are shopping in this these anxious times people might become you know less uh you know less open or less kind of friendly or something because they're, they're frightened they're kind of protecting themselves the third type of anxiety freud uh, sort of identified was a, a moral anxiety which is kind of going against your own moral principles um and this is i mean it's kind of i don't want to spend too much time because it's not that relevant to what we're talking about today but if you kind of if there's a belief that's really strongly installed in you that you know homosexuality is a sin then you have kind of these attractions that uh, you know to other men or women um that that's that will create anxiety with the with the ego bit of you because the ego is trying to negotiate those two conflicting um you know drives the, the drive that conflicts with the principle so Anna Freud, so Freud dies he sorry he moves to um London and I think it's like 19 39 it's just as the war second world war you know he basically has to kind of get out of uh, germany because he's jewish so he kind of is, is in london in the in 39 i think um but in um anna freud who's working with him in the last 15 years of his life uh publishes a book called the ego and mechanisms of defense in 1936 um and uh, 37 in english so basically what Anna Freud's doing is taking like the work that Freud had started and uh, kind of extends it and and through her work with children and um she um basically kind of extended um Freud's defense mechanism she named these defense mechanisms and I'll kind of go through them I don't want to just kind of read them out in a monotone voice so I'll do a bit of acting so um the, the, the de 10 defense mechanisms um identified by freud are denial which is you just you know refuse to admit the reality of a situation and and can you sort of see that the ego might need to kind of employ that in the moment they might just need to go right this is not happening because it's it's too overwhelming it's too difficult to deal with the second one is repression where you bury a painful experience or memory um, once again, it's too, it's too anxiety inducing. It's too painful to kind of remember that thing. So it's repressed. The third is regression where you kind of revert back to a childhood emotional state. Um, um, and sort of lots of, um, fears and anxieties reappear, reappear because you, you kind of gone back into this childhood state because you can't deal with what's going on. But, you, you know, you'll, you'll often display lots of kind of um, immature behaviour. Um, the, um, 
the fourth one is displacement where usually you ha if you have a feeling that makes you uncomfortable um but you can't really express it you'll take it out on something else and um okay the 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 kind of most commonly used example of this is like somebody um, is goes to work and they really they feel uh, belittled and bullied by their boss so they'll go home and kick the dog or cat which is horrible i know but i mean to be to be you know more serious actually for a second that you know you a lot of male anger that can't be expressed seems to be um, kind of uh, displaced upon women. This is domestic, you know, so if you feel um, impotent, and there's an interesting word, but if you feel impotent or powerless um, in some way, people will displace their anger onto somebody less powerful than themselves. You made a really good point. Um... I can't remember when it was when you were talking about kind of, um, you know, sports being stopped and kind of there not being football and things like that. And I guess you could see, I mean, this is kind of hugely stereotypical, but, you know, why not? Um, you could see that a lot of kind of for men, I think a lot of their ways of channeling their particular emotions are through something like football. It's, so I guess it, it, you could see that as like a displacing of like one emotion, but it has this kind of outlet. And when that's taken away, it can be you know, channeled towards women instead. It's really, it's really weird, Bob. I was just talking about that this morning to my partner. Um, I, was, I was reading, to my shame, I was reading a, um, a, a football blog I follow and I, and I said, I kind of really miss football. And then, and then I sort of talked about how it, you know, I, I, about a year and a half ago, I went to the football match, a Premier League football match for the first time in fucking years, you know, since the 1970s. And it was so frightening. I can't, I, I can't express how I just picked up on all this absolute kind of male energy. It was male energy, you know, it was like three women there, me and my sister. And we were in a, a, a crowd at Fulham FC, which is not the most kind of, you know, um, you know, bigger, one of the bigger clubs. It's quite a nice family club. Oh my God, it was like being around all this weird testosterone. It was. Yeah, I agree. I went to Arsenal back when it was at Highbury. One of my mates was really into Arsenal. And I was just like, holy crap, yeah. It, it felt like I was in like a little testosterone bubble or something. Because like you want your, you're there to see a match, like it's football and stuff. But actually in the crowds, when you're kind of, you know, around just like a load of men who are, you know, making quite, you know, awful jokes. <laughs> I went to tell him now. <laughs> I mean, this is so interesting, isn't it? Because I, I haven't intended to go here, but it's like, you know, it's so Freudian what you see happen is like, for some reason, male, let's not be all, you know, yeah, men who go to football matches are also like, it's a place where people can be racist or feel they can be racist. And that is such an expression of kind of inner fear of difference and things like that but somehow yeah. you know in that crowd that kind of you know expression is the place to do it oh god it's so horrible well it's that thing i think we talked about on the kind of first podcast it's just, i'm going to keep saying this i love it that that definitional the it's not definition it's the root of emotion in movere to move out it's just like you know emotions need to go somewhere yeah and that's such a classic example like i bet a load of blokes i mean we are losing a whole potential <laughs> audience right now um but you know like in you know stereotypically like a lot of guys in football matches and stuff like that you know it's just this 
permitted outlet for emotions. And I bet they go home and feel fucking great. Yeah, well, that, that was what we were talking about. You know, I was talking about this morning. I was like, oh my God, you know, the implications of kind of lock, lockdown. I and mean, we know that the kind of huge increase in domestic abuse during this time, but you kind of take away football a bit, you know, and it's like, oh God, where does that energy, you know, where is that expressed? Mm -hmm. Oh, exactly. Um, yeah, I think it's really horrible. So, anyway, can we move on? Yeah, um, that's displacement. Then, then the next one is projection, and this is once again it's one of those things when we do it on training, people are like, "Oh yeah, I know that," but you know, you know it because of Freud kind of thing. You know, he's the first person that gone that sort of went, "Oh, you know, if you you project the feelings onto other people, if you have an uncomfortable feeling, you go, oh no, you know, I hate them. They kind of, you know, they're this or that.' I and mean, that this is all really the really thing that always tickles me is lots of this stuff is you know you see in fellowship you spot it you got it is you know that fellowship kind of ah you spot it you got it it's pure projection I mean, that's what that that phase is talking about do people tend to really kind of get what what it's about um i don't know <laughs> i hope so um i'm just thinking you know again like whenever i think about ego defense mechanisms i kind of picture this little fragile ego and you know whether it's kind of strong or whether it's not i think like as human beings i think we are very kind of delicate and fragile mm -hmm. and i always kind of like picture the ego as kind of being that and i think sometimes seeing something in ourselves which we don't like is just so horrible to to admit that to yourself and to feel the feelings that go with it so it's so much easier to kind of project that out onto someone else because again the emotion has to go somewhere the charge of what you're feeling needs to have a kind of, you know, an outlet. Yeah, and it's a defence, isn't it? That's exactly Yeah, but, but I don't know how many people kind of really get the nuance of it, because I like, I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a really kind of huge thing. I mean, they're all kind of huge and kind of like quite nuanced, but I'm just curious. No, 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 I think it's a really great point, Bob, because actually one of the, and, and kind of how I framed the beginning of this podcast, is like one of the things that really frustrates me is say, you spot it, you got it there then kind of tends to be something following that it's like oh you've got to stop that behavior you know like oh that's a bad thing mm. um oh you know you, you know look at yourself you spot it and it actually doesn't mean I, I wish there would be a kind of i don't know maybe i'm doing a disservice to the fellowship here but i wish there would be sort of a more investigation around what that is and what that means for this kind of fragile self rather than just something else you're doing wrong yeah, and also and why you're doing it in the first place yeah exactly and i think that's the kind of probably bit that's missing it's like oh well, you spot it you got it oh i've got to stop that behavior especially why yeah. you know the why is gotta be there I, and i think it gets lost a bit sorry Shut up. i think that's really yeah you've reminded me of something about that so, so that's come up like in step work you kind of do things like you write resentments down and then you kind of look at those resentments from you know particular people or whatever and why you have those resentments and through doing the work you end up kind of like finding out that those those resentments you know can be things that are your projection from yourself your own lack of this that or the other so you're kind of like working on yourself by looking at why you've got these kind of issues with other people so i guess it would come under the projection okay. thing okay i feel suitably <laughs> yeah okay yeah all right 
Well, I guess it's, it's like so much of what we do generally with the different models and approaches, like taken at a surface level, it is easy to oversimplify and then through oversimplifying, dismiss it or something. And people do that with Freud all the time. Mm-hmm. But when you, when you understand a bit better, you realise how rich it is. Um, which doesn't mean that it isn't misused sometimes. And I think the same goes for fellowship, like at a really surface level, if you just take away the kind of phrases that people knock off, it can, yeah, like it's probably not helpful. But like Heather said, if you apply yourself to it with like some really good intention and some good guidance, it can be really fruitful. Yeah, I think that's an an important point. And uh, and it is like, I think, um, you know, you just remind me whenever I kind of do the Dan Freud, I kind of say, you know, who, who knows what about Freud? And sort of invariably somebody will go, who oh, is a cocaine addict? You know, which is A, not true. And uh, B, it's just like that means that you don't have to kind of uh, take, you know, uh, investigate anything that, that, that any of his ideas, you know, because he was a cocaine addict. And he, you know, well, he was obsessed with sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, 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 it's kind of like, well, you know. We're only looking, we're only saying that from our own cultural perspective. At the time, it was completely normal. It was, it was completely legal and it was just a, another kind of medical thing that, yeah. you know, people yeah. Well, he thought, you know, very early on, kind of very early on in his career, he thought, oh, wow, this, this might really work for people, uh, you know, along the lines of um, how people talk about MDMA used in kind of end of life uh you know um therapy or you know sort of people navigating kind of end of life stuff or marriage or something you know it's like oh this drug might be a useful way of working with feelings so yeah some people's fucking you know buying coke from his dealer um uh yeah i think it's kind of you know, he's, he's not all bloody marvellous, but I think there's, there's loads of stuff in there that's really helpful. And that was the idea of today, is to kind of just focus on ego defence mechanisms. So, projection, um, we've just kind of uh, talked about quite a lot. The other the other ego defence mechanism, so this poor little fragile, Bob's poor little fragile description of this poor sort of self, uh, trying to navigate the world, the other defense mechanism is reaction formation, which Freud very interestingly, very early talks about how um, the man who has kind of homosexual feelings will become one of, you know, become homophobic. Freud uses that word, homophobic. Um, so that kind of, oh, no, gay, um, actually, you know, masks a desire. Um, would, that, uh, would that come under repression as well then? Um, yeah, okay. I mean, they're like, like, they're like running through this. It, repression is really important for Freud. It's like that, that you know, that shoving down of. And I always imagine, like, um, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but you know, that idea of like trying to get loads of shit in a suitcase. And you, I don't know if you've ever seen it in airports where people go and check in and they've got too much, back, you know, language weight, and then they take stuff out and like shoving it down, you know, and it, it comes. What happens? It comes out sideways. So you know a lot of our behavior is like what's coming out sideways from that repression yeah yeah that makes um, sense 
yeah, yeah. Uh, the other one that's is really um, interesting because I, I kind of I think we encounter it quite a lot, and we do it quite a lot is intellect intellectualization, whereby you're having a really difficult feeling and um, you uh, displace you know you kind of actually sort of intellectualize it by kind of cutting off from the 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 feeling. And so the, the example I've kind of got on the handout is like if you were diagnosed with cancer, rather than just experience that really kind of real fear of death, people kind of go and study scientific data and find out about it. But actually, you know, the fear is, is, is death. It's, it's there. And that kind of that life force, that, that kind of eros. And eros isn't just sexy love. It's just life. Yeah. Um, it's not just the kind of cherub in in the middle of london eros for freud is uh, does that really will to stay alive so that kind of huge kind of feeling is is that huge drive to stay alive you know is challenged and um so people displace that feeling by kind of reading about it. and i feel like i'm doing it a bit now and also i feel like with um coronavirus very early on i was just really fucking scared I just thought I don't want to die. I really, I'll be so cross if I die. And I don't want to die to what I would consider government negligence. I was furious, but also scared. And how I managed that was to read about it. Mm. And kind of not feel it because I didn't want to feel it because my ego, you know, I was just frightened, right? Just like, felt like a frightened child. And I kind of, I mean, going back to another one of our podcasts, I was, I was, I was laughing. I was talking to somebody last night, and I sort of they were asking me how I was, and I, I do feel like I've gone through Kubler Ross <laughs> grief cycles, you know, fear, and and now I feel like a real kind of resignation, or you know, my yeah. my need That's to inter- acceptance. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, my need to intellectualize has kind of gone down a bit. I've you know stopped reading so much about coronavirus. Fucking doing my head in. Well, it's probably uh, ironic because it's probably a good ego defense mechanism to kind of be in the safe space of your head. Totally. The more you're yeah. reading stuff, is probably stoking the fires of your emotions as well, which was probably getting repressed. So you have this whole kind of ego defense mechanism cocktail kind of thing going on, like yeah. loads happening at various points or at the same time. Yeah. Well, in a lot of these, and I know that, um, you know, Bex, um, if she's well enough, will talk about this a bit because you did, you know, did lots of research into kind of the levels of these uh, defence mechanisms, uh, didn't you, Bex? I did indeed. And for anybody listening, I look like that chap off the Goonies right now. So, you know, I don't know what, I can't really remember what his name is, but um, yeah. So, what? Chubb. Yeah, yeah, that's him. So yeah, Chunk. His name is Chunk. Chunk, Chunk, Chunk. So I'm, I'm Chunk. So if I sound like you know a bit dodgy, just envisage Chunk. Um, yeah. So I, I really, really love learning about um ego defense mechanisms in general. Um, because it just normalised, I suppose, a lot of the stuff um or behaviours that I sort of go through just in terms of, you know, when I'm in places um, where I'm feeling stress or if I kind of like, you know, I'm feeling anxiety, you know, I, I do certain behaviors. Um, and like, you know, I never really understood what like those behaviors were. I just thought like, yeah, I was being a bit idish, I suppose. Um, 
And very interestingly, um, I mean, it's quite a lot later than Anna Freud, uh, this chap called George Valiant, um, I think it was sometime in the 70s, um, maybe late 70s, classified, came up with a level system where he classified the ego defense mechanisms into uh, four different levels. And I'll include a little bit more about this in the handout because, um, you know, there's, yeah, I can kind of describe on what some of these levels are about and kind of like pinpoint what some of the defense mechanisms are with those levels. But I'll just read them out here. So you have level one, which is pathological defenses. Um, and so those are things like delusional projection um, um, and denial. So it's a real kind of like loss of kind of like reality, um, kind of like a, a separation from reality, if you will, which a level one ego defense mechanism. Level two, an immature defense mechanism. So obviously immature is very different to mature. It's kind of like that childlike state. Um, and those are things like fantasy, projection, um, and acting out. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second, um, because there's one um, particular ego defense mechanism that I find that I do quite excessively in immature. But I'll move on. I'll move on briefly. And then you've got level three ego defense mechanism. So that's neurotic defenses. So those are things like intellectualization, reaction formation. Um, and then finally, he categorized the last um, level as mature. So that's level four. And this is really interesting. And I think it's really important to note because um, in mature uh, defense mechanisms, you have things like humor. Um, uh, suppression, altruism. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that, you know, that really kind of makes sense. The reason why they're mature is because if you're in a position where you're feeling, you know, stress or any sort of anxiety, you use humour. Like, you know, actually, I think that kind of like is quite a good way of coping in the short term. And um, as I said, I, you know, I'll put a bit more of this in, in the handout, but I think kind of like what made sense to me is actually um, not only have I personally been able to sort of identify some of the things I do, it's really normalized my behaviors. And, and the reason why is because um, actually in the short term, they really help me through difficult, difficult stuff, um, things that you know, I am struggling with, like right now, um, like there's quite a lot going on for me. And yeah, I've had difficult, um, you know, accessing my emotions and stuff and a combination of running naked down the road. But um, actually, you know, I, I find that what I did was fantasize a lot. Like I've always been in the fantasy, fantasy world. Like, you know, I can get lost in my imagination for six to eight hours. Like I can, I could do a job in fantasy. And, um, what yeah. happens in there? I want to have a little kind of journey into Bex's head. Oh, yeah, it's like a little Sims land, man. Like you can, <laughs> you know, I did actually have an imaginary friend. And, you know, I always said that my imaginary friend was real. Like it really was. Um, so it's like a little Sims land. But the point is, is now I still fantasize. I still do it. I still go into my imagination land, but it doesn't interrupt my life anymore. Like it's not something where, you know, I have difficult forming connection or relationships to people, you know? Now I just do it because I need to, you know, fucking escape. <laughs> um, you, does that, does... Curiosity. So can I ask a quick question? Go for it, Bobsies. But just like when, so say for instance, when you become aware of like going off into a kind of dream land, which does sound really amazing. Like now that you've kind of had a recognition of like what it is and it's, you've 
you're able to put a word to it. It's an ego defense mechanism. It's a mature one. So you're able to kind of like use it or employ it when you need to. And it kind of serves a purpose. Are you much more conscious of when you do it? Like, is there more of a kind of an intent behind it? Precisely. That's it. Like, and actually, um, fantasizing is, Im is actually an immature defense mechanism. I don't want to get too hung up on, on the levels, but um, actually what I think within the levels is it says that if you have these defense mechanisms and you use them in short term, they can be useful. Mm -hmm. So now it's useful because I'm aware of it. It's kind of like a nice little retreat instead of kind of like, you know, doing something like getting completely smashed on drugs. I can just go and have a little nice little fantasy. Like I can retreat into my imagination. So it really serves a purpose. Um, this kind of like allows you to kind of go there without the superego kind of like, putting its fingers of like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that, you know, it's shame. Because partly what I was thinking was like, I know that if I, if I kind of need to address something or if, if I'm feeling emotional about something, like I can start to spin out. And generally my spinning out is like my browsers on my, on Safari or something. <laughs> so, so I'll have kind of like 17 open at the same time. <laughs> and I kind of like, there are some times where I just think I can't deal with this shit right now. Like I don't have the strength, I'm gonna allow myself to just get lost in these 17 browsers at the same time. And that's okay because I'll deal with it when I've got the strength to do it tomorrow or the next day. And so there's this real kind of like, I don't know, sense of permissiveness. Like I'm gonna just, yeah, can't do this right now. I'm gonna really allow myself to just fucking get lost. <laughs> Cause it serves a purpose. It serves a purpose. And like, you know, it's, it's good to point out that actually sometimes these things can get away in our life. Like our defense mechanisms can be a thing where it stops us kind of like, you know, uh, living in reality. And, and you know, that, that's something that, you know, can be a problem, can't it? Like my, you know, in my past, like, you know, I had a load of defense mechanisms, which, which stopped me kind of like, you know, living life. Um, and now it's kind of like, yeah, actually, I'm having, I'm having a bit of a hard time. I'm really up and down, like I'm kind of cut off emotionally. And I suppose that, you know, actually, in the short term, like I'm aware that I go into fantasy land. Like I'm, I, I do a bit of work for Age UK in the morning. That's altruism. Um, you know, I'm not doing that because I, you know, I gets gets the help all the kind of like all biddies of ones were. Sorry, am I allowed to say all biddies? Um, <laughs> it's an endearing term. I'm telling you. Um, but I do that as well, so it gives me some self satisfaction. Mm. I, um, yeah, I. I but this is the kind of core of the podcast, really. It's like recognizing what might be um, defense mechanisms and how useful they are right now without going into like, yeah, I don't do anything, but that's okay. It's about that balance, isn't it? And I, just as you're talking, I remember really early days of, I mean, literally kind of, you know, the first few months after giving up uh, heroin, um, when I felt very raw, because that would have been the thing that had, had, had kind of wrapped me up, uh, not in bubble wrap against my feelings. So like you take that away and I'm like, oh, and um, I was playing like Sonic Hedgehog for about <laughs> six hours a day. And I just like, it was compulsive. And I remember my, my, my very good therapist sort of really challenging that. And I was like, what she's fucking on about, you know, at least I'm not on the smack anymore. But she, you know, and I, it felt like a really, I didn't really understand the idea that I was just numbing out with Sonic Hedgehog. And, um, 
I can still hear those kind of clang of, of rings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like it's like it's like ingrained in my head somewhere. But yeah, I mean, she really challenged that. And I was like, ooh, 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 I can't, can't do anything, can't have any fun. But she recognised that I was not dealing with actually, you know, reality. I was not able to na navigate or was not navigating reality um, in a way that might have been more useful. Mm. Now, I do want to steer away from that a bit. As I say today, it's like, you know, Freud's just like, look, here are the things we do. Yeah, there's no like, and you shouldn't, and you should be doing this. It's like, this is what we do to be in the world. Yeah, I think that kind of, I, I think it's really important to, to sort of normalise these things a little bit. Me and Liz were sort of talking really briefly yesterday. And, you know, like there is a lot of attention on like change of behaviour and like, you know, negative behaviours. And like, you know, I think it's really important. Um, yeah, just to be able to acknowledge that actually some of these behaviours um, are, are positive and useful. They serve a purpose. I mean, I think that's the thing about, you know, psychology and learning about yourself is just kind of recognizing that you're, what you're doing, you know, by and large serves a purpose. And, you know, the, the important thing is to understand what it is, what the purpose is, rather than, you know, beating yourself up about what you're doing, you know, providing yourself another stick to just beat yourself up with. Yeah. Um. Well, I think it's that feels like a goodish place to to end end this podcast. Um, mm -hmm. And um, any final comments from anybody? Hmm. No. My ego is feeling strong today. A, yeah, a big meaty burger. Yeah, mm. I can go off and intellectualise it all now. Know <laughs> <laughs> that you're doing it is fine. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think it's also probably like when we're, you know, when you kind of meet somebody or talk to somebody who you feel connection with and you feel seen and, and whole and this is like this sense of real kind of, you know, being present and robust and, and there um, is where we're, we're, what, what we're trying to do here. So that's the end of podcast number um, four. That's it. So we'll be having discussions with people about this um, in the seminar groups. But yeah, thank you for listening. Cheers. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.